and understanding into the Apostle Paul by things he wrote to persons, very personal letters. But this letter is written to a man also. It's a personal letter. But this is not to a, well, it's a son in the faith, but it's not a minister of his. And this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul while he's in prison, most likely for the first time, where he had a great deal of freedom. He, would, he was in a private house that he rented. He just couldn't leave there. But he had people came and taught, he taught them and led them to the Lord, and he ministered very effectively out there and was able to write a number of his letters. And then there was a second imprisonment later on, which is the last part of his life where he died, uh, was executed as part of that imprisonment. Uh, but this is written during the first part, probably around 60, 61 A.D. And it's written to a man who was in, in, in Colossae, who most li- sounds like the church of Colossae was met in his house. Some people think he was the pastor of the church, but in any event, he was a significant person. And this is a letter written from the Apostle Paul to Philemon, who was a man, who, who was a wealthy man, and he was been saved under Paul's ministry, most likely while Paul was there. In fact, if you read at the end of Paul's letter to the Colossian church, which is Colossians, obviously, it talks about sending that letter with, a, I think it was Epaphroditus, along with Onesimus back to Philemon, along with a letter for Philemon. And this is the letter. And the occasion is this, and then we're going to read through this, and then we'll, we'll get into what we're learning out of this letter. It's a very simple letter, but it's written on this occasion that Philemon was a wealthy man and owned slaves, which was very not uncommon at all in that day. And as we learned last, last Wednesday night, uh, that, that many of you may have already known it, that in that particular time, slaves had no rights. They were not even considered people. They were considered property. They could be bought and sold just like you could your, your chariot, your horses. They were slaves. They had no rights. They had no right to speak. And, and, what, and, and the, in the uh, slave owner even had whatever just punishment he decided to mete out, especially if a slave ran away, the slave owner had the right to execute them or do whatever he wanted to. What's happened is Onesimus, who was Philemon's slave, has run away. We don't know exactly why, but there's an implication in here that he may have taken something of value, some money. And what's happened is, now remember, when Paul founded the church in Colossae, this wealthy man Philemon gets saved under Paul's ministry. At that time, Onesimus is a slave in his household. Onesimus runs away, ends up somehow in Rome, and ends up in Paul's house church and gets saved under Paul's ministry. And now Paul at some point decides, because Onesimus has been serving him, and Paul at some point decides, I need to send you back to get things right with Philemon. So we're going to read through the whole letter again. Again, it's a short letter. We're going to t- it wasn't take long. Touch on a few things we talked on, touched on last time, and then we'll pick up. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, and to the beloved Apia, Apia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church which is in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank, you, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have towards the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing that is in you. Boy, is that a powerful verse for us. The sharing of your faith. Isn't that what we're here to do? Three of you know that. The sharing of your faith is what we're here to do. Notice this, that the sharing of your faith might become effective. 
We want the sharing of our faith to be effective, which means it touches people. By the acknowledgement or the becoming aware of every good thing which is in you in Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, the more we become aware of what God has done for us in Christ, the more effective our sharing of Christ will be. You understand that? So a lot of times what we try to do is we try to go out there and be more effective sharing Christ, but we really don't have a revelation of what He's done for us. So we really have nothing that's in our heart to share. We have doctrine and understanding, and many churches teach you to share the gospel out of guilt and pressure. And some of you were in some, raised in some of those churches. And you know, if you're not out sharing the gospel, then you're not what kind of Christian are you? And you know what happens is it doesn't work very well. Because I've learned this. What's in my heart when I share Christ, and if somebody responds to it, is going to influence what kind of Christian they are. And if they get saved out of legalistic fear, then that's the kind of Christian you're going to produce, and they don't last very long, and it's not very effective. Romans chapter 1 said, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And yes, there's a hell to be shunned, and yes, there's the wrath of God on those that don't accept Christ, but it's the love of God that gave Christ for us, and that's what God wants us to communicate about Him. But we can't communicate it if we haven't received it or don't have some knowledge of it ourselves. So many times we're trying to give away knowledge we don't have yet. We have head knowledge, but it's the heart knowledge and the heart experience of it, which is why Paul prays for the church at Ephesus in chapter 3, starting in verse 15, that God would strengthen them by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. That means be able to live His life in your heart, out of your heart, not your head, not some duty, but out of your heart of love and compassion. And so that being rooted and grounded in that love, we might come to know, and that word in Greek means know by experience, have the experience of the breadth and length and height and depth, in other words, to know the limitlessness of God's love for us that's in Christ so that He may dwell in us in His fullness. So God wants to fill you with Himself, and then in the overflow of that, you go sharing to others. And then it's some, some big heavy obligation. And we spent a lot of time on that two years ago. So I'm not going to go back over that, but that's why that verse is so powerful. Verse 7. We have great joy and consolation in your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be bold in Christ to command you what is fitting. So what Paul's about to do here, we talked at length about that last week. Paul's, Paul's going to say here, because I'm your father in Christ and I'm an apostle, I have spiritual authority over you to command you to do but I'm going to ask you to do this, to give you an occasion to do it out of love for me, love for Christ, and love for your brother. And we talked about that last week. Though I might be bold, verse 8, in Christ, to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the agent, and now a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. So Paul's saying, while I have been imprisoned, I brought, into the, I brought to Christ. I brought Onesimus into the family. He was born again under my ministry. That's what begotten means. I birthed him into the family of God. Verse 11, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and me. And I'm sending him back. You therefore receiving, that is, my own heart. So Paul is appealing 
to Philemon to receive this runaway slave back. And Paul is appealing how to treat him, saying, I could command you to do this, but I'm giving you the opportunity to step up into another level of love and give you a chance to do what's right out of love for Jesus, for me, and now for your brother. This, this man that was your slave was, was not spiritually profitable to you, but now he is to you and he's profitable to me. He's going to go on to say, I'd rather keep him for me because he's very profitable to me. But this is what I've got to do. Verse 13, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. So Paul said, I would have liked to have kept him as your gift to me. But look at verse 14. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing. What we're seeing here is spiritual integrity. And you don't see this very much anymore in the church. You sure don't see it in the world. But you don't see this very much in the church. What we're seeing here is, is uh, and we, this is what we're really talking about. You have a, a man that was property, slave, who ran away illegally, probably took something clearly illegally. In, in all of that sin, in all of that rebellion, he ends up in Paul's presence and gets saved. Now what happens is there's a problem. Because now what's Paul going to do? The temptation is to say, well, now that he's saved and he's, he's, a, he's profitable to me because there's some value in him to me and because he's worthwhile to the Lord, I'm just going to write a nice letter telling Philemon, don't worry about Onesimus. He's now saved. He's with me. Praise God. Hallelujah. Pray for him and pray for me. Because he's profitable to me. But Paul says no. And this is the first thing we want to see about this. Is Paul is, wants to make sure that the relationship's right. His relationship with Philemon, even though Paul is an apostle. See, because just because you're in leadership doesn't mean you just do what you want to do. In fact, in leadership, you have a higher responsibility to walk in this kind of integrity. You have a higher responsibility to walk in right relationships. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Don't desire to be a teacher. Because there's a stricter... I was reading over that this morning, and I cringe every time I read that. There's a stricter judgment... And then he goes on to talk about what happens with our tongue because our tongue can defile people. So when you're a teacher, when, you're, when you have a speaking ministry, there's a greater responsibility for two ways. First of all, because what I say impacts people. Because God establishes a trust between me and them so that they'll open to receive the Word of God through me, whoever's in this pulpit, which is why I'm very careful what I put here, so that you can trust whoever's here. Because with that trust, people can take advantage of that. And not even just personal manipulation, but they can just have some cause thereon and speak that out and not have it be the oracles of God, the heart of God. The second way when you're in, in leadership you have to be careful is to guard your own heart. The Bible warns us in Proverbs 16 to, to guard your heart out of all, because, and keep it with all diligence because out of it flow the issues of life. So we're all told to guard our heart. But when you're in a ministry where you touch people's lives, especially by speaking, you have to especially guard your heart because whatever gets planted in there is going to come out somehow, whether you know it's coming out or not. So if you keep your heart pure and you keep your heart in the love of God, then you have to worry about it because that's what's going to come out. And then you can trust the person. Okay, 
I don't know how I got off on that, but oh, well, here is what we're talking about. Integrity. So Paul would have every, it would seem reasonable, Paul could, let's put it this way, Paul could feel justified by saying, I'm going to keep him here, I'm going to send a letter saying, you know, he's sorry, he's apologized. But Paul wants to make things right between himself and Philemon because he now realizes this man used to be your property. And legally he still is. So I've got to restore him to you and get that right. And then whatever you do with him regarding me, that's in your charge. Now, I'm encouraging you to do something out of love. The second thing Paul wants to get right is the relationship between Onesimus and and Philemon. Because Onesimus has sinned against Philemon. Now, when he was a sinner, that doesn't matter. But now that he's a brother in Christ, this has to get rectified. That was popular. (laughs) It needs to get rectified. See, God wants things right between us. And you'll see why if we have time tonight to get into it. Otherwise, we'll we'll get into it next time. And here's the point. So Paul is sending him back. Okay, we better read on or we'll never finish the letter. Verse um, 14. But without your consent, I want to do nothing so that your good deed may not be by compulsion, but as it were voluntary. God wants your obedience to be voluntary, not by compulsion. God wants us to be obedient, but He's not standing there threatening you with a stick if you're disobedient, because then it's not out of love, it's out of compulsion. In the Old Testament, it was out of compulsion. But in the New Testament, it should be out of love. Verse 15. For perhaps He departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive Him forever. Now look at verse 16. This is where we talked about last time. No longer as a slave, but, much, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And this is where we stopped last time. I'm going to pick up here now. What, what's going on here is that this man that used to be a slave property to Philemon Because he's now saved and in Christ, he's now a beloved brother of Philemon. So what's happened is because they're now both saved, their relationship has changed spiritually. And what Paul is forcing them to do or or encouraging them to do is is to rectify their relationship based on who they are in relationship now. And what we talked about last time, and this is what I want to pick up on, we, we looked over in, go with me, we'll come back here, I think. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because this affects us, or this, this is about us. It's not just a nice little story, but it is about us. Because when you were saved, who you were changed when you were saved, your relationship with God changed. Because until you were saved, the Bible said you were a sinner. Until you and I were saved, the Bible says we were enemies of God. Now you may not have realized, I didn't realize I was an enemy, because I was a good sinner. Some of you were knew you were sinners. I didn't know I was a sinner, because I was a pretty good person, I thought. But that's by comparing me to you. 
But the Bible compares me to God. I mean, in comparison to God, I was a filthy, rotten sinner. Selfish, conceited, proud, arrogant. You wouldn't have known it, but that was all inside of me. Those attitudes were. And so that's sin. That's pride, rank sin. And I was in rebellion, just as you were, because I was trying to live my life for myself. That's rebellion in the kingdom of God. And so we were all rebels, all rebellious. Therefore, we were all enemies of God. And the moment you receive Christ, you now become His child. Not only are you no longer a sinner, you're now in His family. You're now His child. And so the whole, the whole story of salvation is a story of a change of relationship. And this story is an example of how you have to adjust to that change and adjust in several ways. Now, what we talked about last time, and this we'll pick up on this, and we, we, we touched on the other, is that means you have to be willing to let go of your old identity. And this is a struggle for many people. And the world's trying to pull you back into your old identity. Did you find Second Corinthians chapter 5? Okay, good. Just want to make sure you had time. Verse 15. And He, that's Christ, died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard, that means we evaluate, we esteem, we evaluate no one according to the flesh. Now, what's the flesh referred to? Well, it refers to this physical body, and it refers to our it refers to our physical DNA. It refers to physically who we are. So it's our physical heritage. It also refers to so so what this is saying is we do not we're not to regard our, one another, and that includes ourselves according to the flesh. The flesh means my 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 body. So that means I don't evaluate who I am based on the color of my skin. I don't evaluate, evaluate who you are based on the color of your skin. I don't evaluate or estimate who I am based on my national, my, my national background because my national background is the national background of my body. Because I'm a new creature in Christ. And see, some of you are struggling with this. Remember, we're spirit, soul, and body. We were learning that on Sunday morning. Spirit, soul, and body. When you came to Christ, the well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's just read on. For therefore, from now on, we know we know no one. We regard no one according to the flesh, even though we've known Christ according to the flesh. In other words, He took on flesh and dwelt among us. And the people that walked around Him at that time could recognize, oh, that's Jesus, because they could see what He looked like in His body. But we can't do that now. Because he's no longer walking around on this earth in a physical body, but he's still here. In fact, he's here now in your body and in my body. But if you look at my physical body, you don't see Christ. But we're not to regard each other based on our physical body. We're to regard each other a different, on a different basis. He says, we now no longer regard Christ according to the flesh, although once we did. Why? Because there was a change that took place when he was raised from the dead. When he died, was buried, and was raised from the dead, there was a change that took place. When the Apostle John saw him on the Isle of Patmos, 
Jesus didn't look the same way he did in the Last Supper when John laid with his chest, head on Jesus' chest. John didn't run up to him and says, Oh, my Lord, put his arms around him, says, put his head on his shoulders, says, Oh, Lord, I've missed you. He fell on his face. Because Jesus didn't look the same way. He was now in his fully glorified body. But you can't see that now unless he physically appears in that. But Christ is here. But his physical appearance isn't the way it was 2,000 years ago. His physical appearance looks like Denny and Dawn and Charles and Claudia. His physical appearance looks like, because he's living in us. Ephesians 3, we just quoted it to you. Paul's prayer was that Christ might dwell in you by faith. Because it takes faith to believe he's dwelling in you because you can't see him. Everybody following me? All right, so Paul's trying to do a paradigm shift here to say you've got to stop evaluating people, Christians, you've got to stop evaluating yourself based on looking in the mirror, based on your nat- national heritage, based, and I'll show you that in a minute, based on anything about yourself. That, that means we ignore it and we're ignorant of it, but we don't evaluate ourselves. We don't regard, didn't say you don't notice, but you don't regard, that implies value, esteem, uh, identify one another. And here's the problem. We've got to let go of who we were before we can embrace who we are. So the trap is, and it's all through the body of Christ, People trying to go back into their ancestry and find out who they were. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not who you are if you're saved. You're looking up your ancestry of your dead body. You're looking up the ancestry, and it's not a sin, but you're looking up the... That's why Paul talks about meaningless genealogies. Don't write me emails. But people get caught up in that. That's not who you are. The problem is, if that's where you spend your time looking, then that becomes, because whatever you think about, remember we've learned, gets bigger in your mind. What You're renewing your mind to who you used to be. And this becomes important when it comes to walking by faith, having your prayers answered, walking in who God's made you to be, because you can't embrace the new identity unless you're willing to let go of the old identity. That's why Jesus said, take up your cross. It's a place of death and follow me. And it's not just dying to my own desire. It's dying to my identity. I no longer have that old identity. That's not who I am anymore. So it affects being able to let go so that I can embrace the new identity. And we're going to see it affects our relationship with each other. Verse 17. So what he's told us in verse 16 is how not to look at one another. Don't look at one another and estimate or evaluate one another based on any of the outward things, including of estimating ourselves. Verse 17 is going to tell us how we are to evaluate ourselves. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, you're saved, he's a new creature. And we talked last, word, last Wednesday night, that word new just exploded in me. Because new means I have no past. New means it's like a brand new baby. We get so excited about a new baby because it has no past. It's all potential. It's all future. If any man's in Christ, he's a new 
creature. Who you are now has no, had no past. Which is why that genealogy that you've been paying all that money to have Ancestry.com look up or whoever it is, it's a nice, but it, be careful because that's not who you are. You're looking in the rearview mirror when there's a, there's a, that's why they make cars with little rear mirrors and big windshields. Because the windshield so you can see a big view of where you're going and the little rear view mirror so you can have a quick glance of where you've been. But if you focus on where you've been, you're going to have an accident. He's a new creature. That word creature literally means a new species of being that never existed before. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Verse 18, and those, all those new things are of God. They've come from God. I think Peter's first letter, he says, we've been given great and precious promises by which we become partakers of the divine nature. You literally are God's child in that spirit, man. A brand new creature. And the reason most of us struggle, it goes right back to what I just read in Philemon 6. The acknowledgement of every good thing that God has done in us through Christ. And if we're trying to hold on to that old identity... I'm a such and such. I'm a whatchamacallit, whatever it is. And there's nothing wrong with those things, but that's not your identity if you're in Christ. And here's the problem. We're not, we can't embrace the new identity. We need to spend time meditating on, reading about, talking to God about, talking to one another about our new identity. Because then you've got boldness and confidence to come before God. The reason so many people struggle in faith is the foundation of their relationship with God is shaky because they're looking at themselves in terms of who they used to be. Because we know ourselves better than anybody else knows ourselves. But God's not looking at you based on what you, you know, what you feel like you're like on the inside. God's looking at you on the basis of what He did for you on the cross in Calvary. That's how God evaluates you. That's why God can say, I'm pleased with you. Didn't say he's pleased with everything we do, but he loves you. There's a verse in, 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 in Isaiah 43 where God talking about his relationship with, with Israel, and I may get into this at another time. He, he called Israel precious. And I was meditating on that this summer and realizing everything in those, in those 10 verses speaks of things of how God sees the church and we're the church. I created you, I formed you, I'll not forsake you, I'll be with you. You're precious to me, I've honored you, I loved you. He says, I've given men to Israel, I've given men in your place because you're precious for me. For us, he gave his son in his place. But it says in there, you're precious. And, and I kind of balked at that. I'm precious to him. And then all of a sudden, as I was meditating on it, this understanding of the word precious went off in me. Ever go to a garage sale? Or, or one of these antique things? And, 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 and you find this thing, oh, wow. That's just what I've been looking for. And you want, you'll pay, you know, what is this? How much is it? Right. It now has value to you. You know why it's on that table? It's junk to them. 
It's the, it's the same brooch. It's the same knick-knack. It's the same thing. I have a rule. Drive by every garage sale. Because it'll end up in our garage and be in a garage sale at some point. We don't need more junk. I'm not saying anything wrong with it. And then I thought of another example. We have a neighbor next door that has a dog. And uh, he's got two dogs. One's friendly, the other's not so friendly. And he has this annoying bark. And they have a table, and he'll stand when we have our thing out, our gazebo out in the, in the summertime. I'll sit out there in the morning study, and he'll stand on their picnic table, look over the fence, and bark at me. <laughs> and when he's not doing that, he's on the ground sticking his nose through the fence, barking at me. That dog is not precious to me. That dog is an annoyance to me, but to the owners, he's precious. Right? Little fluffy. You're precious, little fluffy. That you, you know, sit on your lap. He may be annoying to your neighbors or she. So it's not the dog itself. The preciousness doesn't come from the dog itself. It comes from how you see the dog, how you regard the dog, how you regard that brooch or that knick-knack at the garage sale. It's how you choose to value it. You getting this? So when God calls us precious, it's not because he's looked on that garage table and said, wow, that's neat. And it's because he chose to give you value in his heart. Not, and nobody else may look. They may look at you and think you're a piece of garage sale junk. You may look at yourself and think you're a piece of garage, but you're precious to him. Not because there's something precious about you, but because he chooses to value you as precious. And how can he do that? Because he's looking at who he's made you to be on the inside. And so therefore, we're called to learn to regard ourselves based on how God sees us and what God says about us, our inner man, that new creation, who we are on the inside. And Paul, you've heard me mention this on a number of occasions. I won't probably get into that in this teaching. But in, in, in a number of Paul's letters where he's correcting the churches in Galatia, in Colossae, in, in, uh, in Ephesus, and to some degree in Philippi, he's, and in the Corinthians, he corrects them by starting out and reminding them who they are in Christ. Reminding them who they are. And then somewhere where he's going to get into the corrective things, he says, basically, now start acting like who you are. We're going to see an example of this. Maybe not tonight. If we get everything moving along here. Okay. All right. Let's look at a little different. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Next book over. Verse 26. For you, and this is written to believers, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. 
Now let's stop there a second. What's he saying here? Because obviously I can look out there. I know in this day and age there's a lot of confusion about what's male and female. But I can look out there and I got a pretty good idea of which one of you are male and which one of you are female by looking at the outside. So he's not saying, let's forget the gender business. And he's, God's not gender confused. What he's saying is, who you really are is not that sex. Your identity is not, I'm a man of God or I'm a woman of God. Your identity is, you are a child of God. You are in Christ. We're all one in Christ. The only part of me that's a male is my physical body. The only part of you that's a female, if that's what you are, is your physical body. Who I am on the inside is Christ. I'm, I'm a joined to Christ, identified with Christ. But expression in Christ appears all through the New Testament. Brother Hagen wrote a little book, which my wife has worn a number of them out, just in him, contains just the promises, just the, the verses where it talks about who we are in him. And all the promises of God, what God's done for you, who you are in Christ, is always in Christ. And we forget that part. Because what happened when you got saved is you became, your spirit man was joined to Christ. So your identity is in Him, which is why God can call you His favorite and can call me His favorite. Because in, the, in, the, in the, this, this natural world, to say someone's their favorite, unless you live in the South, I guess, because they have a number of best friends. But, but I've never lived down there, so I don't know. But, but to, if somebody's your favorite, that means everybody else is not the favorite. It's kind of like musical chairs. But with God, we're all His favorites because we're all in Christ, and Christ is His favorite. Which is why in James, John 17, Jesus said that the Father loves you as much as He loves me. Why? Because we're in Him. We're joined to Him. Our identity is in Him. We have His righteousness. But we don't live with that consciousness. We don't live seeing ourselves that way. So we walk around feeling inferior to Him and inferior to one another or superior to one another, but we don't recognize who we really are in Christ. Okay. So, so He's not talking about your physical body. He's talking about who you really are. But you know you're not your physical body. That's not your identity. It's what we spend so much time looking at, bathing, cleaning up, fixing up, improving, trying to improve, praying to improve, hoping to improve, giving up on improving. It's what we look at in the mirror. We spend so much time making sure it looks good to everybody else, and yet that's the, the least significant part of us. It's the part we're going to leave here. It turns back to dust. It's, it's trying hard now. But it wins. It turns back to dust until it gets raised from the dead. The real part of you is the part on the inside. It's your soul and your spirit. And we spend very little time feeding that and improving that and so much more time focused on... When I go to the gym, it's like I look at these people. It's like they live there. And there's good for the gym. We belong to a gym and we get... it, try to, But not so that I can... I, I'm not going to do that anyway. But, you know, you know, so what value does that have? It's good to be in good shape. We need to take care of it because this is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But that, that's only to a point. When you've got muscles upon muscles upon muscles upon muscles, what, what good can it do? Eventually it's turning to dust. But that's our identity, their identity. 
is I'm like this, but this is just the house. It's like I keep, you know, adding rooms on the house, but that doesn't change who lives on the inside. And that's what Paul's talking about here. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. See, there's people out there that don't understand the Bible that thinks that the, that the, that the Bible puts women down. That in the Bible they have secondary place. Actually, it's the other way around. In the Bible, the Bible exalts them to an exalted place because they're honored more. But Jesus, Jesus ministered as much to men, women as he did to men. In the kingdom of God, I understand, understand, there's no male or female. We're all one in Christ. Boy, you're looking at me like my head's upside down. I'm just reading the Bible. I'm just reading the Bible. Well, let's get into it a little more. Let's go to Colossians chapter 3. Keep going to the right. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 3. God's eternal power company. Verse 9. Do not lie to another since you put off the old man with his deeds, that the person you used to be, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Let's go break that down a little bit. We're, we're, we're to... Oh boy, let's go back. I didn't give this verse to them in the sound booth, but let's... Um, Now, this verse, verse 9. Do not, do, yeah, do not lie to one another since you put off the old man with his deeds. He's not just saying don't lie to one another because it's not good to do. Don't lie to another one. It's a sin. He's saying don't lie to one another because you've changed on the inside. You've put off the old man with his deeds. And above there he lists some of the deeds of the old man. Verse 10. And you have put on the new man which is renewed. That's the who you are on the inside. That's that new creature, who has who is who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So what we're in the process of doing is renewing our understanding of who we are on the inside, which is the image of him who created him, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. So we're in the process of renewing our minds to who we really are on the inside. We are, Christ is on the inside of us. We're joined to him. This is why in 1 John it says that when we see him, we're going to be astonished. We won't be astonished because we realize when we see him, we're like him. Because not because you have a beard and he has a beard and you don't, we're going to see who he really is and that's who we really are on the inside of us. Well, I'm going to take a risk and go here. How do you think, how do you think Jesus found out who he was? That doesn't exactly say. So I'm, this, is, this is John. But I'm pretty confident in this. Jesus found out, he didn't know who he was was a little baby. Because, you know, he didn't have a halo around his head. You know, forget the pictures. They're nice pictures, but they're not accurate. Because his own people in his own hometown didn't realize who he was. As Jesus grew, he became aware of who he really was. Not by looking in a mirror on the outside, because he didn't look on the outside any different than any other Jewish boy in his town. Because they didn't recognize him. Because, see... 
his hometown people esteemed him or regarded him according to the outer man. But as Jesus began to study and memorize and meditate on the scriptures, especially one about the Messiah, there would be a witnessing on the inside of him, that's you. And as he would read more and meditate more, there'd be growing witness inside of him. That's you it's talking about. That's you it's talking about. How do we become aware of who we really are? The same way, by reading the scriptures and the promises of what God said. And Romans 8 says, and your spirit bears witness. Ooh, this is good. Your spirit bears witness with you that you are a child of God. Your spirit bears witness. The part of you that was changed when you're reading through the scriptures is then they're saying, that's you, that's you, that's you. But we're so unintouched. That's not sure that's a real word, but we're so in lack of touch with what's going on on the inside because we're so focused on the outside. This is the whole purpose of Sunday series. Okay. Verse 10, And I put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge of him according to the image of who is created. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, talking about nationalities now, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So our identity in Christ is no longer who I used to be. There's no problem in saying, you know, I'm Portuguese or Puerto Rican, but just realize you're only talking about your body, not who you are. Now, you may have a a, a native language that's of that, but that's your soul. But who you really are is in Christ once you're saved. Now, that's got to change how we see ourselves and how we see one another. And this was the issue with Onesimus and with Philemon. Because it was now Paul, Onesimus is going to have an adjustment to make when he goes back to where he used to, where he came from. Because when he left there, he was a, he was a, he was a, he was a thief and he was a slave and he was property. Now he's returning back as a beloved brother, as a member of the family. And that takes some adjustment in your own thinking. So I doubt, we don't know, but I doubt that Onesimus just goes barging and sauntering into his old master's house and saying, hi boss, how you doing? But he would have had to work with changing his image of himself and Philemon would have to do some work changing his, oh, this is going to be good. You ready for this? What is there, what is there that was strong enough in Philemon's life and strong enough in Onesimus' life to make that adjustment. It's not an easy adjustment. It's, it's easy to read the story and say, well, we know he's a Christian. Philemon ought to accept him back. But Philemon's got memories of this guy. He may have been a rotten slave. We don't know anything about him other than he stole something. He owes something because Paul offers to pay his debt. So there was some debt there. This is not something that's going to happen easily. So there's got to be something 
that's going to enable and empower both of them to make that adjustment because there's a change in their relationship simply because they've both come to Christ. That's the only difference. At some point, in a meeting, privately, each one of them independently received Christ as their Savior and gave their life to Him. That one event in each one of their lives changed everything for both of them as far as their relationship is concerned. Can you see that? And it did for you too. And it did for me too. It changed everything in my relationship with God. It changes everything in my relationship with me. And it changes everything in my relationship with you, which we won't get into tonight. That's next week. What is it that enabled Philemon, because it's a bigger jump, well, I'm not so sure it is. What is it that enables each of them to make that adjustment and mean it? It's got to be the authority of Paul's words. It's got to be a revelation of what happened to them and who they belong to. It has to be a revelation that they belong to Christ. And therefore, who Christ is and who we are in Him governs their lives. So that regardless of their memory, regardless of their emotions, because the first time they see each other, there's most likely going to be old emotions stirred up. And what we're living in a society that's been trained to be ruled by our emotions, especially Christians. Oh, what a wonderful praise. I could just feel God. I had goosebumps. That's just emotions. Now, God's presence will produce those, but many times it's just that song um, stirred up my soul. And there's nothing wrong with that. But then when we're led by that, what happens tomorrow when I get up and I don't feel that way? God's four million, He must be on the other side of the earth because I don't feel His presence. And I'm learning to tell myself how to feel based on who I am in Christ. I'm learning to get up in the morning, regardless of how I feel, and there's some days I don't even feel like getting out of bed. Feel, I talk to my body and I talk to my soul. That's what David did. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Do you think he's just writing a psalm? He's talking to his soul. He's telling his soul what to do. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget, who, who forgives all my iniquities, who heals all my diseases, who delivers my life from destruction, crowns me with loving kindness and tender mercy, and satisfies my mouth with good things, so my youth is renewed like the eagle. Paul, David is rehearsing what God's done for him. He's telling and reminding his soul, bless the Lord. So you've got to take responsibility for controlling, for, for speaking to your, because that's who you are is not how you feel. Who you are is not how you feel. Because you don't feel the same way now you did this morning. But you didn't change. Who you are didn't change. And it will, it will, it will stabilize your life. When we learn to go by what the Word says about us, not how we feel. Where was I before I interrupted myself? Okay. But we're all one in Christ. Okay. So we have to, what is it, what was it that made that adjustment possible for them? It's the, it's the understanding of who Christ is in their life. 
There have been a few times in my life when everything in me screamed to do one thing. And the only thing that made me do what was right was who Christ is in my life. The love that I have for Him. And I've still got to grow in so much more. But there was something down inside of me that if I continued down that road, it was going to hurt Him. And the idea that I would hurt Him was enough to make me change my mind. And that's what God wants. It wants us to, to obey Him because we love Him, not because we're afraid of Him. And so it was, this, it was this understanding of who Christ was and who they were to Him and who they were in Him that controlled their life. So when everything in them screamed, this, is, this isn't going to work, and this is, you know, what made it work was, but this is who we are in Christ, the reality of who we are in Christ. And the more you meditate on that, the more you study that, the more you talk about yourself that way, the more we begin to evaluate each other that way, the more that becomes real to you and comes not just words on a page, but becomes a reality in your life and then begins to govern you. Because once you see who you are in Christ, you want to do what's right. We don't need the law to tell us what to do because God's written His law in our heart. But you've got to know who you are. When you see what God's done for you and how much God loves you, when you realize the treasure He's put in this earthen vessel that's our body, we'll want to serve Him all the days of our life. We never want to disappoint Him and hurt Him. And that's what He wants to be our motivation. That's what He wants to be our motivation. But the devil's going to fight this and oppose this by reminding us, this is who you are, and get us to focus and bring all kinds of things from the world to attract us and to draw us away from the true identity of who we truly are. And what we'll begin to see next time is when you begin to realize who you really are in Christ, it changes our relationship with one another. And we'll have to pick up there next time. Father, we thank you so much for what it is you've done for us. And Lord, we come to you tonight and, and we've heard some things that for some of us may sound very strange and very hard some perhaps even to, to grasp. Help us to understand what your word is telling us. Help us to understand, Lord, and begin to make this change that your word tells us we must make to begin to see who we are in Christ and, and let go of who we used to be. That doesn't mean we let go of family members. That doesn't mean we change jobs. It changes our identity of who, where our identity comes from, where our value comes from, how we see ourselves. And Lord, begin to open the eyes of our understanding that we may truly see the hope of your calling that's in our, for our lives, that's in Christ Jesus. And for that, we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I, I hope.